Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, and he is going to introduce the guest and subject of today's episode. Andrew, how are you this afternoon? Hello, Nate, and hello to all our listeners. Our guest today is Greg Hale, the editor and founder of Industrial Safety and Security Source, a publication that's been going on for nearly 10 years now. Greg is going to talk about the progress he's observed, the challenges that he still observes in the marketplace as a whole from his perspective as, as a journalist covering the, uh, the topic of, of industrial security, among other issues. Then let's hop on over to Greg Hale. Greg, you've been watching and reporting on this industry for years. Where did it all start for you? Well, it's funny. I I launched the um, Industrial Safety and Security Source, or ISSSource.com site in April 2010. But the genesis of the site actually started back when uh, Y2K was really starting up. When people uh, were freaking out over whether the system would work after the clocks kicked off to the year 2000, at that point, I realized how digital and cyber-connected we had all become. And, and then when 911 occurred, it really struck home that safety and security were going to become paramount to the industry. The catch was, as far as I saw, the main industry players really didn't take security uh, as serious as they took safety. Yes, there were security professionals out there fighting the fight, but it was truly an uphill battle at the time. Um, I had proposed starting up a safety and security publication with my company um, years later, maybe in like 04, 05, that time frame. And but they just kept saying no. And eventually I decided the manufacturing automation industry was going to start focusing on security at a higher level. Then I decided to go out and launch my site. And while safety was always a big deal, security hadn't been as big a deal at that point. And then when I launched uh, in 2010, uh, Stuxnet occurred. And the Deepwater Horizon incident broke out. And those two epic incidents, I thought, would shape the safety and security industries for a year to come. And and just to add a little bit more, with Stuxnet, we ended up publishing a series of stories by Eric Byers, Joel Angel, and Eric, uh, Andrew Ginter, focusing on what Stuxnet was all about. And and then we also wrote some stories about uh, by Richard Sale on who was behind the attack and why. And they were all truly fascinating stories. Uh, So that's kind of the uh, background behind the ISS source. It's interesting to me that that Greg brings up Y2K because that was sort of, uh, it was sort of about cybersecurity, but it was an an imagined thing. So I'm surprised that it actually uh, influenced this real world that we're talking about. Yeah, well, it is interesting that he brings it up. I mean, most people talk about the industrial security space, the industrial, you know, industrial security initiative, as having started roughly uh, with the 9/11 attack. You know, it was a physical attack, but it raised awareness about security enormously. Um, you know, the Y2K connection that that you know I heard was had to do with the realization that so much of our infrastructure depended on these computers that could all malfunction all at once. Um, or, you know, it was sort of that realization of how dependent we were on the computers. In in fact, though, um, I learned just a couple of months ago, I, I attended a, a presentation that Marty Edwards did on uh, the history of the industrial security space. Um, he flagged Eric Byers as uh, one of the pioneers. He, I think Eric published the first peer-reviewed uh, academic paper on the topic of industrial cybersecurity back in 1996, even before Y2K. Would I be going too far as to say that uh, a good portion of the origins of, of cybersecurity have their origins in in fiction? I, I'm just remembering now that, uh, that the term computer worm originates from a, a novel from 1975. Um, are there other examples of this that you could think of where we sort of just 
come to realize that we've uh, we've thought about this stuff before it actually happened to us? What I will say is that uh, not so much fiction, but research. What you know, what I realized a few years ago is uh, that anything that anyone ever describes in one of these conferences saying, hey, look, this kind of attack is possible. And you might look at it sideways and go, really? How real is that? You know, it, it's theoretical. I wouldn't call it fiction. But what I did realize is that by the time any of us mere mortals hear about any of that stuff, um, odds are the bad guys and, you know, even some of the uh, the high-powered uh, you know, militaries, you can decide for yourself if they're good guys. There's people out there using pretty much everything that, that anyone's ever talked about. And uh, and before we get on to the next question, uh, Greg mentioned you in his answer in accordance with Stuxnet. What was that about? Well, that was a paper that um, Eric and Joel and I put together. Um, you know, we put our heads together and said, you know, there's been a lot of people analyzing the Stuxnet worm. Semantic put a team together, analyzed the uh, the artifact uh, at length. Uh, a bunch of other researchers looked at the artifact in detail. Nobody had really put the pieces together and said, uh, what does this worm mean for industrial control systems? If you let this thing loose on an, on an industrial control system that's defended the usual ways, what happens? And so we showed that given the features of the worm, given the capabilities of the worm, you know, things like it, it blew through industrial firewalls like they weren't there. You know, it it uh, it was nasty. So the, the point is, it was sort of an application paper that talked about the application of the worm. If, if it hit your network, you know, what were you likely to see? Let's hop back into my interview with Greg. Since those early days that you, you just told me about, can you reflect on what you've seen since then? So the progress that's been made or maybe the, the lack of progress, uh, what have been the highlights? Okay, well, uh, to me, there's been a mixed bag. On one hand, there's been great progress over the past nine years. I mean, security awareness is through the roof. Um, more companies are starting to create plans for security, and some are even beginning to start programs. Uh, that's a huge jump from years ago. Uh, more and more executives and their boards are, are demanding that something be done. When that happens, it does draw the attention from everyone in the company, that's for sure. Uh, on the other hand, while security awareness is high, I still feel there is a classic paralysis by analysis going on. I feel manufacturers are either uh, thinking, hey, hey, you know, I've never been hit before, so why should I do anything? Or they feel, wow, this, this security thing is incredibly complicated. I really don't know where to start. Or even uh, the project mentality still exists where they may implement a security project, but it starts and stops after the project parameters have been met. Uh, the idea of security is an ongoing thing um, goes against the mindset of today's manufacturers. Also, it used to be that manufacturers didn't demand security in their proposals, so they would get it. They wouldn't, while well, they wouldn't get it, and then security would either be added in later or it would be an additional cost to the original bid. Now I'm hearing from uh, some of my security sources that manufacturers are making uh, sure security is built into the bid. While, while that may not appear like a big thing, I think that is true, that is true growth uh, from what I'm told. Uh, that is much like safety was uh, added into proposals years ago. Now that Greg's painted a picture for us, Andrew, how does your experience square with his? Well, I was a little surprised at Greg's characterization of the marketplace. But, you know, maybe it's because of the people I work with. I work with, you know, we're a vendor. I work with customers who are deploying sophisticated security systems. I get sort of, I get a, a look at um, people who are doing really good stuff. And so, you know, the impression I get is that, well, everyone I work with does really good stuff. You know, um, Greg is is looking at things more from the outside. I, I thought it was interesting that he he characterized it as, yeah, you know, we've been we've been doing this since about you know Y two K or two thousand three, depending on how you count it, or nineteen ninety six, depending on how you count it. We've been at this for a long time, um, 
I kind of I kind of got the impression from him though that there was still a lot of progress to be made. It wasn't it wasn't as uh, what's the right word? It wasn't as as uh, ahead of the curve as as the uh, you know my my own personal experience of of the people I work with in the marketplace. So I thought that was interesting to to get that sort of looking at it from the outside perspective. So Greg, you are the editor of ISS Source, Industrial Safety and Security Source, a name that rolls right off my tongue, as many of your articles are about safety as they are about security. So how are those two things, safety and security, connected? Well, I will say Industrial Safety and Security Source is a mouthful, but it, uh, but it really does talk about the, uh, the topic. Um, on the other, on speaking of uh, your question, I often say security protects machines against man, and safety protects man against machines. I always got the feeling from safety folks for years their systems were immune from any kind of cyber attack, and they would talk about how their systems were impenetrable to attack. And while they may be difficult to penetrate. They are not impenetrable. A security incident can lead to a safety incident. Um, the perfect case in point is the Triton incident that occurred back in August of 2017 and broke to the public in December of 2017. The two areas are so similar, um, meaning safety and security. They are both all about risk and understanding what you have to do to mitigate that risk. In safety, you have to do a process hazard analysis to understand risk and what to do to lower that risk level. As uh, John Cusimano uh, at AE Solutions has been showing, the same is true with cyber process hazard analysis. They can show uh, where your cyber risk is, and then you can work to remedy the situation. Um, on top of that, one of the bigger the big debates in the safety industry for years was should the safety system be independent of the control system or should they be integrated into the control system by working separately and independently? That was, and, and quite honestly still is, a very emotional subject, uh, very hotly debated. But after the Triton incident, where a safety system and also a distributed control system were taken over and potentially controlled by an attacker, the safety system subsequently tripped and shut down a Saudi Arabian petrochem refinery, there's an immediate outcry for a separate safety system. But in this day and age of the industrial Internet of Things environment, where there is an increased level of connectivity, all systems, separate or interconnected, are vulnerable. Even the Stuxnet case showed us an um, air gap system was not connected to anything. That was truly vulnerable. And actually, if you really think about it, the Stuxnet incident was a um, was really a cyber incident that was focused on a safety um, uh, incident. So I, I think that was also another related safety incident. But going back to the Triton thing, Triton was a planned cyber attack on a DCS and safety system that had ill intent behind it. And not to be overly dramatic, but, but that means all systems, especially those in the critical infrastructure, need to remain on high alert at all times. So, um, you know, Eric's thrown out a lot of, a lot of terminology here. Uh, the Triton attack was the one that targeted uh, a safety system, uh, shut down a refinery. Um, you know, he talked about uh, process hazard analysis. Um, you know, for the, you know, anyone who's not familiar with these, these safety instrumented systems, the, uh, the purpose of a safety instrumented system, an SIS, a safety system for short, is to protect human life, to prevent human casualties. And so they're very important at these, uh, you know, industrial sites. Every, uh, every powerful tool is also a weapon. These industrial sites are very powerful tools. And so we have to be very careful around them. Um, if if I might digress for a second, you know, just give you a contrast. Um, if you look up the uh, the British Petroleum Texas City refinery explosion in two thousand five, there's a lovely video on the web that um, the American Safety uh, Authority put together, and it talked about what went wrong at that site. 
with regard to safety. And they said the site had a great program for uh, worker safety, for personnel safety. You know, every stairwell had a sign in it saying, hold the handrail, we don't want you to trip on the way down the stairs. You know, every place that had anything overhead had, you know, you got to put your hard hat on, reminders of all of these sort of everyday things. But the uh, the the organization, British Petroleum, was faulted for having a poor process safety thing. Personnel safety and process safety are two different things. And process hazard analysis has to do with process safety. Process hazard analysis looks at, um, you know, what is an acceptable rate of failure? The, you can never reduce a rate of failure for these large processes to zero. What's an acceptable rate of failure? What's an acceptable rate of casualties at this site? And most people look at a number that's something like, well, we have something like, I don't know, let's say we have a thousand of these refineries worldwide. Um, if we have uh, an explosion at a refinery once, you know, one anywhere in the world, once a century, if there's one explosion per century, that that might be a, a cost of having access to refined petroleum products that society worldwide is willing to pay. So you run the numbers and say, okay, if... Once a century is an acceptable rate for one of these failures uh, worldwide, and there's a thousand sites, you got to do the math. A thousand times a century is, well, any individual site can only fail, you know, blow up and kill people once every hundred thousand years. Once a century worldwide, a thousand sites, you multiply it together, it's a hundred thousand years per site. Ooh, that's a... that. That's getting pretty ambitious. Okay, now you look at all of the ways the site can blow up. Let's say there's a thousand ways the site can blow up. You run the numbers. Each one of those ways can only fail once every thousand times a hundred thousand, once every hundred million years. Okay, um, that's extremely reliable. And it's these safety systems that are charged with monitoring and, you know, triggering shutdowns if they sense an unsafe condition. It's these safety systems that have to be that reliable that the safety system does not shut, you know, does not fail more than once every hundred million years. And you say, well, nothing lasts a hundred million years. So really, I'm going to need at least two of these things running in parallel so that if one of them fails, I can take it down, I can repair it, and the other one is still working. How often do they fail? How long does it take to repair? How many of these do I need running in parallel to get that high a degree of confidence that this thing, you know, is going to last, uh, uh, you know, a hundred million years before I get a combination of random failures and circumstances such that, uh, you know, something bad happens. It's, and it's not just, you know, this is done for every kind of failure in the system. It's a, it's a, it's a long, very detailed process. This is process hazard analysis, and it's focused on the process, not the people walking around running down the stairs. You can't trigger an explosion by running down the stairs and tripping and twisting your ankle. Now to the meat of what Greg was talking about, the debate between independent versus integrated safety systems. Andrew, where do you fall on that? Uh, well, I lean towards independent. A lot of people do. Um, what we're talking about here is the question, is the safety system connected to anything outside the safety system? Um, you know, can you monitor it from outside, from from your cell phone? That is sort of an extreme example of, of connectivity. Um, the, you know, a lot of people say uh, every flow of information is a potential attack, and therefore there'd better not be any information passing between the safety system and the internet, no matter how indirectly, because that's an attack path. It's the kind of thing Triton exploited. Other people say, no, no, you know, it's no good if we can't monitor it. We've got to be able to use the information. Connectivity is essential. This is the debate between the benefits of connectivity and the security risks of connectivity. And the, the argument is still going on, just like Greg said. You've told me about where it all started for you and what's happened since then a little bit. Um, can you speak to what's going on today? So what are the hot topics in and around your your water coolers, the hot technologies, the debates, that sort of stuff? You know, when you're talking about today's hot topics, the word nuance comes to mind. And, and by that, I mean, if you go to conferences, and again, I, I, I go to plenty of them, you, or you talk to security professionals, they're all talking about the same things they talked about eight, nine, ten years ago. 
But the difference is uh, the type of discussions they're having. That's where nuance comes in. Um, Today, as it was years ago, people are talking about the people process and technology area. They're talking about the Purdue model. They're talking about the IEC 62443 security standard, and and they're talking about the ITOT uh, relationship and how they're working together. Years ago, those subjects were all given surface-level discussions, but now, however, the discussions are going much deeper and are more sophisticated. Along those lines, uh, there are some technologies out there that are giving the industry something that is needed for a very long time, and that is uh, visibility. Visibility into what is going on over the network, and more importantly, visibility into what devices and networks the manufacturer has working at a facility. I remember talking to one of uh, the um, um, visibility vendors, and they were saying they went out to one plant, uh, and they were, and they asked the uh, plant manager, you know, how many um, how many devices did they have working on the plant floor, and they said, ah, we probably have about. 200 to 300 and um so they plugged in their device and it ended up being they had about um i think it was something like 10,000 devices working and but that's all stuff that had been added on over the years and they just knew nothing about it if you don't know what you have you sure can't protect it and i think that visibility is is becoming more and more importantly uh today um also, when you talk about high, hot debates, the ITOT convergence uh, issue is very interesting. Uh, again, I like to tell the story about when I was at a supplier's user group years ago. And when someone at a presentation um, was given a presentation, was mentioned the IT department, he ended up being booed by everybody in the audience. And the relationship um, at the time was rocky at best. Uh, but today... OT needs IT to ensure a secure environment, and and IT needs OT to make sure everything is done in the proper manner. Uh, That's where IT's confidentiality, integrity, and availability model surely comes in conflict, uh, conflict rather, with OT's availability, integrity, and confidentiality environment. Knowing the system has to stay up and running is the lifeblood of any manufacturing system. And the ITOT convergence, is it's going to happen. It's happening. And it's going to get even tighter and tighter over the years. So, Nate, I mean, Greg's stories there from, from what, what things were like 10 years ago very much agree with you know my own experience. I remember being at a, a conference on automation, not on security. So you had all sorts of people coming by. You'd have process engineers coming by from you know some big company that that uses automation, and uh, I'd ask them, you know, are you interested in security? No, 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 we're not interested in cybersecurity. IT does cybersecurity, not us. That's their responsibility. You know, we're looked after. Thanks anyway. Okay, and a few hours later, the IT people from the same company would come by and I'd say, hi, you know, let's talk about cybersecurity. Are you responsible for cybersecurity in your big company? Yep, yep, we're responsible company-wide. We do cybersecurity company-wide. Great. What are you doing on the control systems? Oh, the control systems. Oh, them? No, no, they're special. We don't handle them. What's the lesson? Engineering wasn't doing security. That's IT's job. IT wasn't doing security. (laughs) They're too special. Nothing was happening. It, you know, the, these organizations were completely blind to it back then. Um, you know, today, you know, as as uh, Greg said, there's resources, there's standards, there's there's stuff out there. There's a conversation happening that's much more informed and and uh, hopefully uh, much more useful. Having watched and, and written about all of this for a decade now, um, where do you see the industry moving? If we're not so far from uh, if you bring up IT, you get booed off a stage. Uh, where do you see us going five, ten years from now? Well, uh, one of the things I see as being different in five to ten years is ensuring uh, a secure supply chain, which is also what I see as another hot debate within the industry right now. You you may be as secure as you can be, meaning you know you individually or your organization individually. But if your partners remain vulnerable or your vendors remain vulnerable, then you 
remain vulnerable. Um, you know, you can use the target uh, incident as a perfect case in, uh, in point. Uh, security only goes so far when you're working with uh, multiple partners, but plus your partners, uh, are, are your partner supply chain secure? I mean, today you may not even know the answer to that question. Security used to be um, uh, I, you need a hardened perimeter to fight off the bad guys. Then it was the idea they were going to find a way in, so security has to be stronger on the inside. But lately, I've been uh, growing more aware of the idea of resiliency and the thought of being able to sustain an attack and not have to totally shut you down or not have that attack totally shut you down uh, where you can continue on producing product uh, remains, I think, is going to be a huge issue moving forward. At this point, I really don't think manufacturers are at that point. But I'm thinking they will get there at some point in in the next five, ten years, if not sooner. Plus, a holistic, overarching security program is something I think will gain more traction. Again, we're not there yet, but I think with the IIoT, the industry will have to get there sooner than later. And plus, while I'm not a technologist and and understand um, and understanding that technology is not the total answer, I will say with more advances in, advances in technology, with things like big data analytics and AI, um, that will become stronger in the years to become in the years to come, uh, rather. Uh, but it's as it is with most things, humans need to play a big role and get a stronger grasp on what security is all about. And I'm not just talking to security professionals here. I'm just talking about everyone that's working within a manufacturing environment. They have to really know what security is all about. I'm interested in your having brought up the subject of resiliency. Could you perhaps elaborate on the distinction between security and resiliency and why thinking about resiliency in the first place may be helpful to to uh, solving some of our problems? Well, I, I think the idea behind that is, you know, bend but don't break. And, uh, you know, again, security years ago was always about you got to fight these guys off and just kind of uh, have them bounce off the uh, – a manufacturing environment. Well, we've learned that that's not going to happen. I mean, bad guys are going to get in. I mean, that's if they want to get in, they're going to get in. So how do you defend against an attack and how do you be able to, uh, you know, use proper techniques to kind of uh, protect yourself and be become more resilient and not necessarily, um, 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 you know, have everything shut down immediately. You know, it, the zones and conduits model, I think, helps in in terms of how you can become more resilient and how you can kind of contain attacks in various areas or various zones. You know, being such a, a hot topic in the industry, I'm surprised that resiliency hasn't come up more on our podcast thus far. It is a hot topic, Um it's it's still in its infancy. Um, you know the the idea the ideal for resilient systems is that they can be compromised. They can suffer attacks. They can be you know they can suffer compromise and keep going. Um, you know the the analogy resilience in in the the analogy they give in the physical world resilience of a spring has to do with how much you can deform the spring and still have it return to its original shape. Um, after the, the 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 force that's applying the deformation uh, relaxes, so the the whole idea is that you might slow down operations, you might impair operations, but you don't break anything. And when you you know fight off the attackers, everything springs back to normal. And you know, it this is this is the ideal. Um, when I say it, it's in its infancy, that ideal most systems are far from it. The the example everybody gives. You know, is the power sector? They say the power sector is highly redundant, highly resilient, um, but it's been difficult to apply that model for most other industries. 
I'm actually somewhat surprised that you say that the power grid is the shining example of what's most resilient. And I recognize a sort of media bias in what I'm about to say, but the news stories you hear tend to be about power grids that maybe don't show 100% resiliency. The example I always go back to, and of course, this wasn't actually a cybersecurity incident, it was an accident of another kind, is the 2003 Northeast US power outage. Um, Wouldn't that be an instance of a power grid, an advanced power grid, showing poor resiliency? Yeah, I, I, I take your point. When people cite resiliency in the power grid, a lot of the time they're talking about power generation, where the North American grid produces at its peak something like a terawatt, a trillion watts of power. Um, On the generation side, the largest physical generator is like 850 megawatts. It's less than a gigawatt. It's less than one-tenth of one percent of the generating capacity of, of North America. You can knock out a terawatt of, of generating capacity, you can knock out two or three of these, and the grid doesn't even notice. You know, three tenths of one percent of the, the capacity is knocked out if you knock out three of the biggest generators. That's the example that's given as as uh, you know the ideal for resiliency. Um, the 2003 blackout was a cascading failure. It was, uh, you know, the tra- that was a failure of the transmission grid not a failure of generating capacity. Um, and even then, the, the the blackout is cited as an example of resiliency because uh, even though, you know, all of the, well, a lot of the lights went out, um, there was no physical damage to almost anything. The computers that were designed to protect, you know, to prevent physical damage worked and within you know, five, eight, ten hours, whatever it took, everything was working again because the physical equipment hadn't been damaged. So, you know, this is the, uh, again, it's, it's, this is the ideal. Um, how to apply it to, I don't know, a refinery or a water treatment plant, to me, is more problematic. I mean, you might argue that um, you can, you know, segment your networks, you can have a a segment of your network that has the optimization systems in it. And if, let's say, ransomware falls in and and, uh, takes out the optimization systems, um, well, you shut down the connection between that segment and anything else. You isolate the attack. And now you're still producing power, you're still producing gasoline. You may not be producing it quite as efficiently as in the past. You know, if you're producing, I don't know, $30 $30 million worth of stuff per day, um, you might only make, I don't know, I'm pulling numbers out of the air, $5 million profit when you could have made six. This is the purpose of the optimization system. So that's that's an example of a kind of resiliency. But if you imagine an attack, a ransomware attack, attack getting right into the control network, now everything stops. The, the question of how to do resiliency, how to tolerate compromise is very much an, an open question. Um, you know, it's a it's a hot topic, but there's not a lot of answers out there right now. You know, I take your point, but I think that some something in what you said, uh, at least in my interpretation, sort of demonstrates maybe the, the limits of this term, um, resiliency, because, of course, we could say, okay, even in the example that we just talked about, 2003 power outage, um, no equipment was damaged. That's all great. But of course, if your lights went off for, you know, days on end, um, I can imagine someone thinking, you know, good for you. Your your equipment's still fine, but my power went out for three days. How is this resiliency thing any importance of any importance to me? Well, this is this is just it. If the equipment's damaged, you know, if a high voltage transformer is damaged, um, it doesn't work anymore. It you know it caught fire. Um, it's gone. It's finished. There is no worldwide inventory of high voltage transformers. You have to special order every one of them. It takes you know there's a six to nine month lead time. It's not that you would suffer a three day outage. If the physical equipment is damaged, you might suffer a six or nine month outage, or you might suffer rotating outages because you've got a 
move equipment around and share the equipment between the sites. This is the, the, the concept of, of resiliency in the, in the grid. And, you know, there's, there's voices out there saying, look, uh, they look at the, the Ukraine example where a distribution grid was targeted and uh, the lights went out and they fell back on analog uh, controls, meaning they went to these, these, uh, the affected substations, they physically unplugged the computers and said, that's it, you're done. And they went and turned on the power by taking a big physical switch and moving it from one position to the other. Now the power flows are enabled again. Le- you know, locking that switch into position, now you've got power flows. Okay. Um, you know, that's, that's a, it's possible to, to uh, imagine analog control, not digital, physical control for processes. It's much harder to imagine that for a refinery or for a pipeline. Um, you know, the, the whole concept of people talk about analog backups. Well, I don't know how to do an, an analog backup for uh, most physical processes. I don't know how to say the computer controls the process normally, but um, you know there's an automatic analog failover so that I can tolerate compromise. I just don't know how to do that. So uh, you know we're 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 getting distracted here a bit from from Greg uh, and and his uh, commentary, but he's right on the on the money. This is a topic that people are going to be talking about for a long time, in part because nobody knows how to solve the problem. It occurs to me too that. Uh, these separate questions that we've been talking about, the security and safety, and then even the IT and OT, sort of connect one another. Because, you know, when we're talking about IT people in with ICS security, um, some of the issue is that coming from information technologies, you don't have to think about safety. It's all about security. Um, on the other hand, the people who are more used to uh, industrial technologies know that safety is maybe their number one priority, even above security. Um, is there a helpful way to look at this balance between these two sort of factions, or am I simplifying the matter? Um, where do you land on all of this? Well, you know, the IT side has to, as they're getting more and more involved, and, and they are getting more and more involved, much to many people's chagrin, the, they they have to learn they have to become a sponge in what and what uh, the IT or the OT environment is all about and they have to be able to pick up on and grasp the idea of safety and they also have to make sure that you know what they're doing is not going to compromise the the safety environment uh, OT gets it they know it now, if IT and OT have any kind of relationship, and I will say that relationship is much better today than it ever has been, then they're going to be able to convey that message. IT can't come in with their guns blazing saying, you know, this is going, it's going to be our way or the highway. I mean, it, that just can't happen. But at the end of the day, everybody has to understand what this is all about. It's about keeping the environment safe. It's about keeping the environment secure, but it's also about keeping the environment as productive and is uh, keeping the systems up and running and as profitable as possible. And if everybody, if there's a constant state of conflict and lack of understanding between all areas, then you know, then that's just not going to happen. Now, what Greg said there to me recalls what we talked about in the Patrick Miller episode of our show. That's right. I mean, he he's, sounds to me like he's echoing uh, Patrick's perspective where, you know, IT is all about the the opportunity that is possible from access to data, from moving data around, from, uh, you know, of course, applying security mechanisms to protect the data. And OT is all about engineering risk. And... Uh, you know, especially when we, we look at the extreme ends of it, the cloud on one end where we're talking about big data analytics and the safety systems on the other end, um, every organization, every ITOT, uh, you know, uh, decision process has to find a boundary, has to draw a line between uh, those two extremes, however fuzzy, and say on the left, we're going to manage 
this according to engineering disciplines. You know, on the right, we're going to manage it according to, to IT disciplines. And that line, however crisp, however gray, you know, whether it's closer to the, the, the safety systems, whether it's closer to the cloud, um, drawing that line is going to be unique to every organization. But uh, the two perspectives have to be reflected. And uh, people are talking about this. Good things are happening here. You know, with these questions that, that I ask Greg back to back, it occurs to me, is it even a, a relevant conversation to have to say that IT systems tend to be more resilient than OT systems? Um, I really don't know. I haven't really thought about resilience as it applies to IT systems. Because theoretically, they're always under attack and they do stay running, right? So isn't that the definition of the term? Well, they don't actually. You, you, the example I gave a minute ago, ransomware. You, you infect something with ransomware, and everything kind of stops because you've encrypted all the useful files. You can't process the data anymore. But you know, if you've been keeping nightly backups, you erase the machine, you restore from backup, and you carry on. So, in that sense, it's it's resilience. I mean, resilience is not a black and white thing. It's a it's a gray spectrum as well. Uh, taking the power grid down for nine months is very, very bad. Um, taking it down for a day is not good. Taking it down for an hour is maybe tolerable. On the IT side, you know, what's it take to identify the, the affected equipment, erase it, restore from backup? It's a few hours. It's not completely continuous, but it's not, you know, a nine-month shutdown either. So that's a fancy way of saying maybe. Okay. Just a thought. Let's jump back to my interview with Greg. Your publication is in English language, but I imagine you get around to other parts of the world as well. Um, can you compare what's happening in North America with what you see in other parts of the world? I don't know. It's You're right. I do have readership uh, mainly in North America, but all, I'm from everywhere in the world. I mean, you know, you name the continent. I've, I've got readers on it. Uh, but, you know, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, the readership for our site from Europe is, is fairly strong. And uh, from what I, and from what and my interviews with various uh, executives and security professionals, it seems like, you know, Europe is, is up there in security because there's also uh, more regulation that seems to be going on there. But also. The Middle East, I mean, that is, uh, they seem to be, that area, that region seems to be really keen and really uh, picking up on security, and they're more in tune with security. And I, I'm not saying any other region is, is not, but I'm just saying the Middle East seems to be more tuned into what the security is, and they're doing more about it. North America, as I, as I mentioned before, really seems like they're on the, on the cusp of uh, on taking off and security. Yeah, I mean, like I, as I mentioned before, security awareness is just through the roof. There's, I don't think there's any manufacturer out there that it doesn't have it as their number one or two topic, uh, top, top topic out there. But um, they, you know, they're going to, they're, but there's kind of kicking the tires and, yeah, more and more companies are doing things, but as a general rule, I think they they could be doing better. Whereas, I like I said, I think the Middle East is uh, much further ahead. You know, it doesn't surprise me that he says that the the Middle East is leading in this domain. It, Andrew, do you think that that's the legacy of incidents like Stuxnet and Shamoon Saudi Aramco? I'm not sure it is. I would, you know, I agree with his assessment. I would say that what you have in the Middle East is a a very big uh, awareness of physical threat. Um, you know, it's a it's a place of of many conflicts, and uh, in my experience, when I I work with uh, people in parts of the world where there is, uh, what's the right word? You know tension, physical tension of, you know, the, the, the risk of physical conflict, um, just the, the whole awareness of security is, is uh, higher. And, and uh, you know, when you work in a, a place like, I don't know, Central Europe, where you're, you're uh, 
you just you haven't you haven't had a war in 50 years um the uh you know the awareness just isn't there people 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 ask the question why would anybody want to do that to us whereas nobody ever asks that question in the middle east what i thought was interesting was his comments on north america i haven't heard that perspective before but you know he he's right the two data points he put together he said look there's a lot of people talking about security there's a lot of uh, you know people flagging security as a high concern and nobody's doing anything about it yet and so those two can't continue indefinitely at some point the the high concern the high awareness the high level of discussion has to turn into a high level of action and you know it'll be interesting to see if if he's right if that happens you know it'll be exciting times so my takeaway from this is that Canada and the US need to go to war and then finally we'll take ICS security seriously. Um, that would not be a... Uh, the, seriously doesn't really work in that sentence there, Nate. But um, yeah, that's, 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 the, you know, that's the, the, the kind of thing. We, we see, for example, um, another area that, that uh, Greg didn't mention, we see a, a heightened awareness of security on the, uh, the edge of the, uh, you know, the China Nine Lines, where China claims uh, the China Sea and the other nations around the edge uh, claim, you know, their, their claims overlap with China's and that source of, of conflict leads to a very heightened awareness of security and even of cybersecurity. Um, so, you know, I, I, think, I think Greg very much has a point there. All right, I'll keep brainstorming. I have no more formal questions for you. Is there a parting thought that you can leave with our listeners? I've been saying this for years, and, it's, um, and, and, I, and I'll keep saying it for probably, few, probably a few more years. That security has always been poorly marketed, and by that I mean instead of um, they they really originally they're playing off the fear, uncertainty, and doubt or the FUD factor, and they're using security and calling it an insurance policy. and And those messages are are they work, but it's a, to me that it, it's a, it's over a short period of time. I'm looking at security as something as being more more than that, and that's a business enabler. That's where if you're doing it right and you're using the proper discipline, it'll keep your system up and running, which means you're more productive and more profitable. I mean, we've done stories where, uh, you know, the top security players – Systems are up and running more frequently and the um, less downtime, obviously, the more productive and they're more profitable. And, yeah, they're putting more money in, into security, but it pays off on the long run versus the bottom tier security players. The opposite is true. You know, they're not spending much on security. So there's not that uh, ca- that outlay. But, you know, they're also having more downtime. They're less productive and they're not as profitable. So to me, it ends up being a, more of a no-brainer. But you know, I but I understand why people don't do it. I mean, I kind of get that. But um, you know, over the years, I've just asked everyone uh, that I interviewed that question. You know, is, do you see business? Do you see security as a business enabler? And in most cases, they just say yes. Um, they get it, but they, they care more about keeping their names out of their headlines and making sure their systems stay uh, attack-free. And But if they don't take that next step, then I don't think they're going to they're gonna reap the rewards that'll be, um, that'll come if they have a secure environment. Plus, you throw the IIoT on top of that, you know, you really, really have to understand your security program and um, and I think once you do that, I think the profitability and the uh, the uptime is going to be that much greater. Andrew, your final thoughts on Greg's final thoughts? <laughs> um, well, I thought that was a great insight that uh, increased reliability, in, you know, means productivity, means profitability, and that that is something that uh, security vendors and and others advocates for for cybersecurity in the industrial space uh, you know that we should all emphasize i mean 
one way that that uh, I actually see that happening in in sort of at many customers is the the level of understanding, the level of discipline that a cybersecurity program can impose on an organization. So, you know, for example, for a while, many years ago, I was uh, selling and installing intrusion detection systems for industrial networks. And the, the owners and operators would be looking over our shoulders saying, uh, so all this network traffic, what is that? And we, you know, we were running through the uh, the alerts and we were looking at different kinds of traffic. Inevitably, one of them looking over our shoulder would say, that, what's that? And I'd explain that that's, you know, network time protocol or that's something else, you know, domain name service. And they'd look at that and say, that's not supposed to be there. Where's that coming from? And thinking about security, I mean, it, the fact that it's not it's not supposed to be there wasn't necessarily a security vulnerability. It's just not the way the system was designed. And so digging into how things work helps people understand them better, helps people make them more reliable. You know, in, in the same sense, um, every flow of information, whether it be a physical flow through a USB drive or a laptop or an online flow through a firewall, every flow of information can also be an attack. Understanding information flows, controlling information flows, um, you know, Controlling information flows like one, you know, one big kind of information flow is security updates. Controlling security updates, controlling all of this stuff to a, a higher degree, disciplining uh, the flows of information in a plant can, you know, also you know, increased understanding of information flows, increased discipline of information flows is going to contribute to reliability in the long run. And so, you know, Greg didn't go into detail, but my you know, it, it really rung a bell. I thought that was a that was a great insight. All right. With that, I'd like to thank Greg Hale, and I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thank you. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. I'll catch you all next time.